0: Section 6 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 10, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mary Beatrice of Modena, Chapter 10, Part 3. The princess received a very amusing letter from her brother on the 3rd of August, informing her that he had been to Valence, and afterwards paid an incognito visit to the army under the command of the Duke of Berwick in Dauphiny, The queen permitted her daughter to gratify the sisters of Chalot by reading this letter aloud to them at the evening recreation, at which they were delighted. The fond mother herself, although she had read it previously, could not refrain from commending the witty and agreeable style in which it was written. She told the nuns, That her son would certainly render himself greatly loved and esteemed wherever he went. Adding, that she had been surprised at what he had written to Lord Middleton about two deserters from the regiment of Berwick who had gone over to the enemy's army and surrendered themselves to General Rayon, a German, who commanded the army of the Duke of Savoy. When they arrived, General Rayon was with the bailey of a French village, who had come to treat about a contribution. Being informed of the circumstance, he ordered them to be brought before him, but instead of giving them the flattering reception they doubtless anticipated and asking for intelligence of their camp, he said to them very sternly, You are very base to desert your army, and what renders your conduct still more infamous is your doing so at the time the King of England, your master, is there. I was surprised, continued the Queen to learn that a German had so much politeness as to venture to give my son the name of King. It seems, madam, replied the nuns, as if he had a secret presentiment that the time decreed by Providence is approaching for a happy revolution, the boldness of Mr. Dundas makes us think so, for otherwise, according to the justice, or rather, we ought to say, the injustice of England, he would have been punished for his speech. No, replied the queen. They cannot do him any harm, and his speech has been printed in England and dispersed throughout Scotland and everywhere else. It is amusing to find the cloistered sisters of Shallot talking of the speech of an Edinburgh advocate, but not surprising since the widowed queen of James II, who still continued to be the central point to which all the Jacobite correspondence tended, held her privy councils at this time within their grate, and constantly discussed with her ladies before the favorite members of the community who had the honor of waiting on her, the signs of the times, and the hopes or fears which agitated her for the cause of her son. If one of the state ministers of France visited Mary Beatrice and made any particular communication to her, and she prudently kept her silence on the subject, its nature was divined by her looks, or the effect it produced on her spirits, and in due time, the mystery unraveled itself. In regard, however, to the speech of Mr. Dundas of Arniston, there was no necessity for secrecy, for the sturdy Scot had fearlessly periled life and limb to give publicity to his treasonable affection for the representative of the exiled House of Stuart, and his audacity was regarded as a favorable indication of public feeling towards the cause of that unfortunate prince. Mary Beatrice had sent some silver medals of her son to several of her old friends in England, among the rest to that errant Jacobite lady, the Duchess of Gordon. These medals bore the profile of the Chevalier de Saint-Georges, with a superscription endowing him with the title of James the Third, King of Great Britain, Ireland, and France. On the reverse was the map of the Britannic Empire with a legend implying that these dominions would be restored to him as their rightful king. The Duchess of Gordon, to try how the lawyers of Scotland stood affected towards a counter-revolution, sent one of these medals as a present to the Dean of the Faculty of Advocates. It was received by that learned body with enthusiasm and Robert Dundas of Arniston, being deputed to convey their acknowledgments to her grace, told her that the faculty of advocates thanked her for presenting them with the medal of their sovereign lord, the king, and hoped her grace would soon have the opportunity of sending them a medal to commemorate the restoration of the king and royal family, and the finishing of rebellion, usurpation, treason, and wiggery. Such was the weakness of Queen Anne's regnal power in Scotland at that time, that no notice was taken of this seditious declaration, till the Hanoverian envoy complained of it to the Queen. In consequence of his representation, orders were given to Sir David Dalripple, the Lord Advocate, to proceed against Dundas. But the prosecution was presently dropped, and Dundas not only printed his speech, but defended it, in a still more treasonable pamphlet, which in due time found its way not only to Saint-Germain, but to the convent of Chalot, and was highly relished by the nuns. Once, when the prospects of the restoration of the exiled Stuarts to the throne of Britain was discussed, the Princess Louisa said, For my part, I am best pleased to remain in ignorance of the future. It is one of the greatest mercies of God that it is hidden from our sight, observed the Queen. When I first passed over to France, if anyone had told me I should have to remain there two years, I should have been in despair, and I have now been here upwards of two and twenty. God, who is the ruler of our destinies, having so decreed. It seems to me, madam, says the princess, that persons who, like myself, have been born in adversity are less to be pitied than those who have suffered a reverse, Never having tasted good fortune, they are not so sensible of their calamities. Besides, they always have hope to encourage them. Were it not, continued she, for that, it would be very melancholy to pass the fair season of youth in a life so full of sadness. Sister Catherine Angelique told Her Royal Highness that her grandmother, Queen Henrietta Maria, was accustomed to thank God that he had made her a queen and an unfortunate queen. Thus, madam, continued the old religieuse. It is, in reality, a great blessing that your royal highness has not found yourself in a position to enjoy the pleasures and distinctions pertaining to your rank and age. Truly, said the queen, turning to her daughter, I regard it in the same light and have often been thankful, both on your account and that of my son, that you are at present, even as you are the inclination you both have for pleasure might otherwise have carried you beyond due bounds. Such was the lessons of Christian philosophy, with which the royal mother endeavored to reconcile her children to the dispensations of divine providence, which had placed them in a situation so humiliating to their pride, and that ambition, which is generally a propensity inseparable from royal blood. Catherine Angelique told the queen and princess, that their royal foundress, as she called Queen Henrietta Maria, in the midst of her misfortunes, was glad to be a queen, and that she would say sometimes, it is always a fine title, and I should not like to relinquish it. For my part, observed Mary Beatrice, I can truly say that I never found any happiness in that envy title. I never wished to be Queen of England, for I loved King Charles very sincerely and was so greatly afflicted at his death that I dared not show how much I grieved for his loss, lest I should have been accused of grimace. It was during one of these conversations that the name of the late queen dowager, Catherine of Burganza, being brought up, the Princess Louisa asked her mother if there were any grounds for the reported partiality of that queen for the Earl of Feversham. No, replied Mary Beatrice, not the slightest. It is very strange, observed the princess thoughtfully. How such invidious rumors get into circulation. But, continued she, the prudence of your majesty's conduct has been such as to defy scandal itself, which has never dared to attack your name. You are too young to know anything about such matters, my child, replied the queen gravely. Pardon me, madam, rejoined the princess. These things are always known, for as one of the ancient poets has said of princes, their faults write themselves in the public records of their times. Mary Beatrice enjoyed unwanted repose of mind and body at this season, she had cast all her cares on a higher power, and passed her time quietly in the cloister, in the society of her lovely and beloved daughter, in whose tender affection she tasted as much happiness as her widowed heart was capable of experiencing. The lively letters of her son, who was an excellent correspondent, cheered the royal recluse, and furnished conversation for the evening hours of recreation, when the nuns were permitted to relax their thoughts from devotional subjects and join in conversation, or listen to that of their illustrious inmates. It was then that Mary Beatrice would occasionally relieve her overburdened mind by talking of the events of her past life, and deeply it is to be regretted that only disjointed fragments remain of the diary kept by the nun who employed herself in recording the reminiscences of the fallen queen. Occasionally the Holy Sister enters into particulars more minute than interesting to the general reader, such as the days on which Her Majesty took medicine, and very often the drugs of which it was compounded are enumerated. Successive doses of quinquina, with white powder of whalebone, and the waters of St. Remy appear to have been a standing prescription with her. By the skill of her French surgeon, Beaulieu, the progress of the cancer had been arrested so completely that it was regarded at this period as almost cured. Whether this were attributable to her perseverance in the above prescription, or to the diversion caused in her favor by a painful abscess, which fixed on one of her fingers at this time, may be a question perhaps among persons skilled in the healing arts. Mary Beatrice suffered severely with her finger, and her sufferings were aggravated by the tedious proceedings of Beaulieu, who had become paralytic in her service, and though his right hand had lost its cunning, was so tenacious of his office that he would not suffer anyone to touch his royal mistress but himself. Her ladies, and even the nuns, were annoyed at seeing his ineffectual attempts at performing operations with a trembling, uncertain hand, and said he ought not to be allowed to put the queen to so much unnecessary pain. But Mary Beatrice, who valued the infirm old man for his faithful services in past years, bore everything with unruffled patience. It was a principle of conscience with her, never to wound the feelings of those about her, if she could avoid it. She was very careful not to distinguish one of her ladies more than another, by any particular mark of attention, for all were faithfully attached to her how much milder her temper was considered by persons of low degree than that of one of her ladies may be inferred from the following whimsical incident one day at dinner she complained that the glass they had brought her was too large and heavy for her hand and as for that out of which she was accustomed to drink which she said was both lighter and prettier The young domestic probationer, who washed the glass and China belonging to her majesty's table, hearing this, ran in a great fright to the econome and confessed that she had had the misfortune to break the Queen of England's drinking glass. I don't mind the Queen knowing that it was I who did it, said she, but I hope she will not tell Lady Strickland. Mary Beatrice was much amused when this was repeated to her and laughed heartily at the simplicity of the poor girl. The same damsel, whose name was Claire Antoinette Constantin, being about to take the veil, as a humble sister of that convent, expressed an earnest desire, the night before her profession, to make a personal confession to the Queen of England, of an injury she had been the cause of suffering, for that she could not be happy to enter upon her new vocation till she had received her pardon." The unfortunate widow of James II, having had painful experience of the deceitfulness and ingratitude of human nature, doubtless expected to listen to an acknowledgment of treacherous practices with regard to her private papers or letters that had been productive of mischief to her interests and the cause of her son, when she consented to see the penitent offender, who, throwing herself at her feet with great solemnity, confessed a peccadillo, That inclined Her Majesty to smile. She spake the girl kindly, and having talked with her about her profession sent her away with a light heart. Mary Beatrice met one of the nuns in the gallery, presently after, to whom she said, laughing at the same time, Do you know that Sister Claire Antoinette has just been asking my pardon for causing me the afflicting loss of a little silver cup and two coffee spoons? It was derogatory to your majesty for her to say that you could feel any trouble for such a loss, replied the nun, but she hardly knew what she said when she found herself in the presence of royalty. The queen condescended to assist in the profession of the humble Claire Antoinette. The 19th of September being a very rainy day, the queen did not expect any visitors and was surprised at seeing one of the Dolphiness's pages riding into the court, who came to announce that her Royal Highness intended to pay Her Majesty and the Princess of England a visit after dinner. She arrived after her retinue at four o'clock, accompanied by her sister-in-law, the Duchess of Berry, Adelaide of Savoy, Duchess of Burgundy, was then Dauphiness. The abbess received them at the great, and the Princess Louisa came to meet them in the cloister leading to the Queen's suite of apartments. As soon as the Dauphiness saw her, she signified to her train bearer that she did not require him to attend her farther. And it seems she disencumbered herself of her train at the same time. For our circumstantial chronicler says, she went to the princess of England in carpeau, which means in her bodice and petticoat without the royal mantle of state, which was made so as to be thrown off or assumed at pleasure. The princess Louisa conducted the royal guests into the presence of the queen, who, being indisposed, was on her bed. She greeted the kind Adelaide in these words. What has induced you, my dear Dauphiness, to come and dig out the poor old woman in her cell? The Dauphiness made an affectionate reply. I do not know exactly what she said, continues our Shiloh chronicler. But the queen told me that she conversed with her apart very tenderly, while the princess entertained the Duchess of Bury. After some time, her majesty told her daughter to show the duchess to bury the house, and the Dauphiness remained alone with her. When the princess and the duchess returned, the Dauphiness begged the queen to allow the princess to take a walk with her, to which, a willing assent being given, they went out together. The heavy rain having rendered the gardens unfit for the promenade, the royal friends returned into the house, and the princess took the Dauphiness to see the work, with which she seemed very pleased they afterwards rejoined Mary Beatrice in her apartment. As it was Saturday afternoon and past four o'clock, continues our authority. Her Majesty did not offer a collation to the Dauphiness, but only fish and bread with a flask of muscat. The Dauphiness, the same day, gave orders to the Duchess de Lauzun that there should be a party made for the chase in the Bois de Boulogne on purpose for the Princess of England, and a supper prepared for her at the House of the Duchess at Passy. There were two great obstacles in the way of the Princess enjoying this pleasure, which the poverty of her royal mother apparently rendered insurmountable. She had neither a horse that she could safely mount, nor a riding dress fit for her to appear in before the gay and gallant court of France. Bitter mortifications those for a youthful beauty, and she the daughter of a king." The amiable Dauphiness, however, who had either been informed of these deficiencies or guessed the state of her unfortunate cousin's stud and wardrobe appointments, sent one of her equerries on the morning of the important day with a beautiful, well-trained palfrey from her own stable for the princess's use, together with a splendid riding dress. She wrote at the same time to the queen. Entreating her to permit the princess to join the hunting party on horseback, for she had sent one of the horses she had been herself accustomed to ride, adding that she hoped her majesty would excuse the liberty she had ventured to take in presenting, also one of her own hunting dresses to her royal highness, the princess of England, the time being too short to allow of having a new one made on purpose. The pride of a vulgar mind might have been offended at this little circumstance, but Mary Beatrice, though her naturally lofty spirit had been rendered more painfully sensitive by her great reverse of fortune, fully appreciated the affectionate freedom of her royal kinswoman, and wrote to her with her own hand in reply, that it would be very unkind to refuse what was so kindly meant and courteously offered, that she thanked her very sincerely, and assured her that she should have much joy in the pleasure that had been provided for her child. Meantime, the equerry having brought the horse into the garden, the Princess Louisa mounted there and took a few turns to try his paces and although she had not been in the saddle for upwards of two years, she felt perfectly self-possessed and assured. The temptation of wending with the royal beauty to the gay green wood and describing her dress and deportment on that one day of princely disport with the dauphiness and the gallant court of France, must be resisted, since it is not the life of Louisa Stuart, but of Mary Beatrice d'Este, which at present claims the attention of the reader. The princess and her governess, Lady Middleton, who accompanied her to the chase, returned to Chalot at a quarter after nine the same evening. On the Tuesday following, Mary Beatrice considered it proper to pay a visit to the King of France at Versailles, and to thank the Dauphiness for her attention to her daughter. It cost her to struggle to emerge from her present quiet abode, to present herself at court again after so long an absence. She said several times, I am getting such an old woman that I feel embarrassed myself on such occasions and shall only be a restraint on others. She took her young bright Louisa with her to Versailles to make all the round of state visits to the members of the royal family. Her Majesty wore a black mantle and cap, but the princess was in full court costume. They returned to the convent at eight in the evening. Mary Beatrice wished to make a round of visits to the religious houses of Paris, and especially to the sisters of Saint Antoine, but as the pestilence was raging in that city, she was deterred from the fear of exposing her daughter to the infection. She had promised the princess the pleasure of going to the Italian comedy at this time, and a day was fixed but the evening before, Lady Middleton represented to the Queen that it might be attended with danger to the Princess, as Paris was so full of bad air, on which Her Majesty told her daughter, that although it gave her some pain to deprive her of so small a pleasure, she could not allow her to go. The Princess had reckoned very much upon it, but said Her Majesty's kindness quite consoled her for her disappointment. Never was a mother more devotedly loved and honored than was Mary Beatrice, by her sweet daughter, who had now become her companion and friend. One day, when she had allowed the princess to go incognito to Paris with Lady Middleton, to dine with Madame Roths, the married daughter of that lady, she could not help repeating many times during dinner. It must be owned that we miss my daughter very much. Mary Beatrice, notwithstanding her fears of exposing that precious one to the danger of entering the infected city, was persuaded to take her with her to the Church of the English Benedictines, when she went to pay her annual visit of sorrowful remembrance to the remains of her lamented lord, King James, which still remained unburied under a sable canopy, surmounted with the crown of England, in the Isle of Saint-Jacques, though ten years had passed since his death. To avoid attracting attention or the appearance of display, the royal widow and orphan daughter of that unfortunate prince went in a hired coach, attended only by two ladies, the Duchess of Perth and the Countess of Middleton, to pay this mournful duty and to offer up their prayers in the holy privacy of a grief too deep to brook the scrutiny of public curiosity. On one or two previous occasions, the coach of the exiled queen had been recognized and followed by crowds of persons of all degrees, who, in their eagerness to gaze on the royal heroine of this mournful romance of history, had greatly distressed and agitated her, even by the vehemence of their sympathy, the French being then not only an excitable but a venerative people, full of compassion for the calamities of royalty." Popular superstition had invested the deceased king with the name of a saint and attributed to his perishable mortal remains the miraculous power of curing diseases. His bier was visited by pilgrims from all parts of France, and on this occasion his faithful widow and daughter, shrouded in their mourning cloaks and veils, passed unnoticed among the less interesting enthusiasts who came to offer up their vows and prayers in the Isle of Saint-Jacques. Some persons outside the church asked the coachman whom he had driven there. The man, not being at all aware of the quality of the party, replied, that he had brought two old gentlewomen, one middle-aged and a young lady. This unceremonious description beguiled the fallen queen of England of a smile, perhaps from the very revulsion of feeling caused by its contrast to the reverential and elaborate titles with which royal personages are accustomed to hear themselves named. Queen, now only by courtesy, deprived of pomp, power, and royal attributes, Mary Beatrice had gained, by her adversity, better things than she had lost, patience, resignation, and sufficient philosophy, to regard the distinctions of this world and its vanities in their true light. Yet like all human creatures, she had her imperfections." That quaintly minute chronicler, the nun of Chalot, records that she once saw her royal friend visibly discomposed for a very slight matter, and that, strange to say, caused by an unwanted act of awkwardness on the part of her daughter, the Princess Louisa, who, in drawing the soup to her at dinner, spilt it on the tablecloth and all over the queen's napkin. Her majesty's color rose, she looked angry, but said nothing. In the evening, she said, She felt so much irritated at the moment that she had with great difficulty restrained herself from giving vent to her annoyance in words. She severely censured herself at the same time for allowing her temper to be ruffled by such a trifle. Mary Beatrice bore a serious trial soon after with the equanimity of a heroine and the dignity of a queen. On the day of St. Ursula, as she was about to enter the choir of the conventual church with her daughter to perform her devotions, a letter was delivered to her from the Duc de La informing her that the negotiations for a peace between England and France had commenced, which must involve the repudiation of her son's title and cause by Louis the Fourteenth. Mary Beatrice read the letter attentively through without betraying the slightest emotion. Then showed it to her daughter, who wept passionately. The queen turned into the Isle of St. Joseph, where, finding one of the nuns, whom she sometimes employed as her private secretary, requested her to write in her name to the Duc de Lauzun, Thanking him for the kind attention he had shown in apprising her of what she had not before heard, and begging him to give her information of any further particulars that might come to his knowledge. She then entered the church and attended the service without allowing anyone to read in her countenance any confirmation of the ill news, which the cheerful eyes of the princess showed that ominous letter had communicated. An anxious interest was excited on the subject among the sisters of Chalot, who certainly were by no means devoid of the feminine attribute of curiosity. At dinner, Mary Beatrice showed no appearance of dejection, and no one ventured to ask a question. The next morning, at the hour of relaxation, seeing all the nuns near her, she said, She would impart to them something that was in the Duke of Lazune's letter, namely that their king had said at his levée, The English have offered me reasonable terms of peace and the choice of three cities for the treaty. She said no more, and the abbess of Chalot, taking up the word, rejoined, But madam, what advantage will your majesty and the king your son find in this peace? The queen instead of making a direct reply said, Peace is so great a blessing that it ought to be rejoiced at, and we have such signal obligations to France that we cannot but wish for anything that is beneficial to it. At supper, she told the community the names of the plenipotentiaries on both sides. She said, that she had as soon as she was informed of these particulars written to her son to hasten his return because it would be desirable for her to see and consult with him on the steps proper to be taken for supporting his interests. The Chevalier de Saint-Georges was then at Grenoble. From whence he wrote a long amusing letter to his sister descriptive of the place and its history and of the principal towns and ports he had visited. The princess read the letter aloud to the nuns in the presence of her royal mother, who, though she had read it before, listened with lively interest to all the details. Mary Beatrice gave a medal of her son to the abbess of Shalow, which, says the recording sister of that community, will be found among our archives, together with a copy of the speech made by the seer Dundas in Scotland. The Princess Louisa had given the Duc de La Zune one of these medals in the summer, and he, in return, presented to her, through one of his wife's relations, Sister Louise de Lorange, a nun at that convent, a miniature of the Queen, magnificently set with diamonds, in a very pretty chagrin box. The Princess testified great joy at this present, but the Queen appeared thoughtful and sad. At last, she said, I have been several times tempted to send it back, I see I am still very proud, for I cannot bear that any one should make presents to my daughter when she is not able to make a suitable return. It is from the same principle of pride, continues Her Majesty. Then I cannot consent to allow my portrait to be painted now. One should not suffer oneself to be seen as old and ugly by those who might remember what one has been when young. She was, however, induced to allow the princess to retain the gift which had been so kindly presented by her old and faithful friend, de Lazune. At supper on the 3rd of November, someone told the queen that the Marshal Tallard had facetiously proposed to the ministers of Queen Anne that the prince, whom they call the pretender, should espouse their queen as the best method of reconciling their differences. "'You are mistaken,' said Mary Beatrice." It was a priest who made that proposal, and I will tell you what he said at the recreation tonight. All were impatient to hear the right version of the story, and at the time appointed, Mary Beatrice told them, with some humor, that a witty Irish priest, having been summoned before a bench of magistrates for not taking the oath of abjuration, said to their worships, Would it not be best, in order to end these disputes, that your queen should marry the pretender? To which all present exclaimed in a tone of horror, "Why, he is her brother!" If so, rejoined the priest, "Why am I required to take an oath against him?" The Abbess of Chalais asked the Queen in confidence, "If the reports about the peace were correct, and if so, whether anything for the relief of Her Majesty were likely to be stipulated in the treaty?" Mary Beatrice replied that the peace was certain to take place, and that she had some prospect of receiving her dower, but it must be kept a profound secret because of the Irish who would all be about her. Her great anxiety was to pay her debts, of which by far the largest was what she owed to the convent of Chalot. It gave her much pain, she said, that she had not been in a condition to pay the annual rent, namely 3,000 livres for the apartments she hired there the arrears of which now amounted to a very large sum. The abbess took the opportunity of reminding her indigent royal tenant of the state of outstanding accounts between Her Majesty and that house. She said, that in addition to the 18,000 livres Her Majesty had had the goodness to pay them. She had given them a promissory note for 42,000 more for the last 14 years. Mary Beatrice was so bewildered at the formidable sound in french figures of a sum which did not amount to two thousand pounds of english money that she could not remember having given such an engagement and begged the abbess to let her see it the abbess produced the paper out of the strong box and her majesty presently recollecting herself freely acknowledged and confirmed it the abbess in the evening called a council of the elders of the community on the subject and they agreed that they ought to thank her majesty for what she had done The very politeness of her creditors was painful to the sensitive feelings of the unfortunate queen. She interrupted them with great emotion by saying that one of the greatest mortifications of her life was to have seen how many years she had been lodging with them for nothing and that they must attribute it to the unhappy state of her affairs and to the extremity of that necessity which has no law. Among all the sad records of the calamities of royalty, there are few pictures more heart-rending than that of the widow of a king of Great Britain, reduced to the humiliation of making such an avowal. The money that should have been devoted to the payment of her rent at Chalot had been extorted from her compassion by the miseries of the starving thousands by whom she was daily importuned for bread when at Saint-Germain. As long as the royal widow had a livret in her purse, she could not resist the agonizing petitions of these unfortunates, and when all was gone, she fled to Chalot, literally for refuge. She told the community that they might reckon on her good offices whenever they thought it might be in her power to be of service to them. One of the nuns who waited on Mary Beatrice took the liberty of approaching her when they were alone, and endeavored to soothe her wounded spirit by assuring her that the and sisters could never sufficiently acknowledge her goodness and her charity to their house, and that the whole community were truly grateful for the blessing of having her among them, for her example had inspired them with a new zeal for the performance of the duties of their religion. Adding that it gave their community great pain when the poverty of their house compelled them to mention anything that was due to them, but they should all be most willing to await her majesty's convenience. Mary Beatrice talked of changing her apartments for those lately occupied by Mademoiselle de la Motte, which were only half the rent of hers, but it was begged that she would retain her own. The next day, Mary Beatrice had the consolation of embracing her son, who arrived at Chalot on the 4th of November at nine in the morning, having slept at Chartres the preceding night. He entered alone, having hastened on before his retinue to greet his royal mother and sister. They both manifested excessive joy at seeing him. He dined with them in her majesty's apartment, and the abbess waited on them at dinner. The queen and princess both said several times that he greatly resembled his late uncle, King Charles the Second. This prince says the recording sister of Chalot is very tall and well-formed and very graceful. He has a pleasant manner, is very courteous and obliging, and speaks French well. After dinner, permission was asked of the queen, for the community to have the honor of coming in to see the king, as they called her son. Her majesty assenting, they entered, and seated themselves on the ground, and listened with great interest to the Chevalier's conversation, which consisted chiefly of his remarks on the various places he had visited during his late tour, on which, like other travelers, he delighted to discourse to reverential listeners. Mary Beatrice kindly sent for Sister Louise de Lorange, one of the nuns, who, although she was then in her retreat, was well pleased at being indulged with a peep at the royal visitor. Mary Beatrice announced her intention of returning to Saint-Germain with her son that evening, and said she would not make any ado. She paid, however, a farewell visit after Vespers to the Tribune, where the heart of her beloved consort was enshrined, and then returned to her own apartment, and waited there while the princess took leave of the abbess and the community. Notwithstanding the joy of the princess, at this reunion with her much-beloved brother, she was greatly moved at parting from the kind nuns, and when she made her adieu to her particular friend, Sister Marguerite Henriette, she burst into tears. The queen herself was agitated. She said several times that she could not understand two conflicting inclinations in her mind, her desire to return with her son, and her fear of quitting her home at Chalot for the turmoils and difficulties that would beset her at Saint-Germain. At her departure, she said a few gracious words of acknowledgement, as she passed them, to those nuns who had had the honor of waiting upon her. Her beloved friend, Françoise Angelique Priolo, was in ill health, and the following playful letter, without date, was probably written to her by Mary Beatrice, soon after her return at Saint-Germain. Although you have preferred my daughter to me, in writing to her rather than to me, about which I will not quarrel with you. I must needs write two words to you to explain about the money that Dempster brings you. There are twenty-two louis, and of which two hundred livres must be taken for the half-year of the perpetual mass, twenty-nine for the two bills that you have given to Molza, and the rest to purchase a goat, whose milk will preserve and improve the health of my dear good mother." They assure me that they have sent the money for the wood. Endorsed to the mother Priolo. Mary Beatrice came to see her sick friend at the convent of Chalot on the ninth of December, accompanied by the princess her daughter, and returned the next day to Saint Germain. End of section six.